This episode is sponsored by Bill Gates. Microchipping since 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Jake. I suppose that means that I'm Ant. And on this podcast, we look at the kind of ethical questions you might ask in your day to day life, such as, are you a bad person if you work at Facebook? Or, in today's episode, would it be ethically justifiable to make the COVID vaccine mandatory? You know, quick bit of quick bit of info. We're longtime friends. We founded a business together and a social enterprise uh, and a podcast. Uh, mm. Check out the businesses Stasher for luggage storage around the world and Tree Points for carbon offsetting with rewards. Um, we met studying a mix of philosophy and economics back at Oxford Uni nearly a decade ago. Man, when did we get so old? I know, time flies. Just to say, as always, our aim in this podcast is not to tell you what to think. It's more about how to think. How do we break down a question? How do you go about getting an answer? If indeed there is a right answer to be had. Yeah, man, critical thinking, that's where it's at. I totally like appreciate and respect people with different views as long as they're coherent. Uh, but yes, we're big fans of nuance. So you know, we won't shy away from saying what we think, but those aren't intended to be the quote unquote correct answers. Although we like to ask what might seem like controversial questions, uh, nuance is key to understanding them. So let's jump right into this episode today and give some context on COVID and vaccines. Okay. For anyone listening in the future, at this point of recording, and the date is the 4th of January, 2021. Skynet has just taken over with their AI and their <laughs> <now> drones. <laughs> and we love and respect our lizard overlords. <laughs> I, for one, welcome. Our... <laughs> yeah, that's the quote. Okay, so, but where we are, present vaccines, uh, there are at least three that I know of that have been approved, possibly more. The first came from Pfizer slash BioNTech. It's already in circulation. Over 600,000 UK residents have already been vaccinated with it. The first person to receive the jab was a 90-year-old in the UK. And as we say, more vaccines are coming out to be approved and more to be distributed. The UK actually recently approved the AstraZeneca one. No surprise there. That was the UK's horse in the race. Mm. Um, and interesting thing about the BioNTech-Pfizer one, right? I think I said this to you before, but you know, if they weren't first, nobody would care. It is... I, I, it's it's super cool that it's the first RNA based vaccine, but it is hideously impractical. It's, it's like it's, it's it, ice it, cold. <laughs> yeah, it requires it requires minus eighty degrees. So unless they can just you know move it around in my ex's heart, there's just no way. That that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's more of actually my ex is a lovely person. That's just a joke. Yeah. But um, no, that it, it's hideously impractical. If they weren't first, no one would care. But sorry, the first person to get jabbed was a 90 year old in the UK. Yes. The second um, was a guy called William Shakespeare, which led to a fantastic is that a joke? string. I'm, I'm not joking. And it was great because I saw I saw this thing online. Guys like, open your eyes, people. Can you see what's going on? This isn't a vaccine. It's a reanimation program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you'd think you'd think, as you say, we'd be we'd be celebrating, you know, it, it's like we're approaching the light at the end of the tunnel. But it's a strangely mixed mood because January at the same time is is the worst month for respiratory diseases historically seasonally that's always the case this one has not disappointed and even though it looks like we're on the way out we're going back into lockdown Boris Johnson is due to make an announcement later today for the UK uh, the US has recently set I think death records you know higher than the first wave and many healthcare systems which are on the brink during the best of years in the winter just the added strain of COVID is really not helping and I think to, to kind of top off all of this positivity around around vaccine, sorry, that wasn't positivity, but you know what I mean? The, <laughs> the, positive, the positivity around vaccines. 
There is kind of a, a, a lurking question among the populace that, is, that has actually spawned concerns and inquiry. Will people be willing to take a vaccine? You know, there have been many illegitimate anti-vax movements for decades. And, and by illegitimate, uh, you know, I mean, they're basically just founded on nonsense conspiracy, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, in the case of COVID, some legitimate skepticism, which we will talk about. But in the context of those, and like, you know, conspiracy anti-vax movements, it's still never before been considered reasonable that we should just force those individuals to take vaccines. Uh, it's not clear whether that's because it would be, you know, just practically too hard and alienating, uh, or because there is actually some sort of moral basis on which we might say it's wrong to deprive people of that choice. Um, however, the problem has become so extensive, you know, even before COVID, to the extent that actually measles has been reintroduced in the US. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. When I saw that in the in the notes that you left, I got curious and looked it up and it's true. Oh, do, do you yeah. normally double check my notes, Jake? <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to fact check everything that you come out with, mate. But, <laughs> well, I'm going to fact check your fact checking. <laughs> but yeah, I found this thing in the Lancet and it's... I, yeah, I can't believe that happened. Like measles was nearly driven out and it's it's coming back uh, in 2019. That was, I think so. Pretty crazy. Goodness. But anyway, to, to get back on topic, it, it seems to be the assumption that it would be unethical to mandate vaccine taking. It, it, that just kind of seems to be the vibe, right? What's, <laughs> is that, which, is that a public health term? Technical. <laughs> yeah, it's an ethical term. Uh, however, but it's time to vibe check. <laughs> <laughs> however, COVID is a whole new playing field, or, or perhaps just a good time to question old assumptions. So the pandemic's been hugely painful in a variety of ways, more than just in terms of the death toll. But the scientific community is unanimous in its assertion that vaccines offer our societies the best way out of this pandemic. And as a result, there have been some sort of whispers of change on the wind. Australia's prime minister said vaccines should be, quote, as mandatory as possible, unquote. Spain has said they'll be keeping a register of vaccine refusals. And a UK parliamentary human rights committee actually published findings that found it wouldn't contravene human rights laws. And actually, mandatory vaccination would be justified on the same proviso as lockdowns. And the current crisis really is a good time, yeah, just to pause and reflect. I know so many of us have done that in our personal lives. You know, people have quit their jobs as lawyers to become wood whittlers. Good for you. <laughs> in, <laughs> in this case, it, it's a good chance to ask why we've been so accepting of, of anti-vaccination rhetoric previously uh, and valuing people's free choice over public and, and even their personal health. I mean, to clarify as well, maybe there are some legitimate concerns with COVID. I don't really think so. But, um, but you know, most previous anti-vax stuff is provable bunk. It was based on like that Mm. nonsense autism link and and just people who don't understand basic science. Like, why are we valuing people's personal choice, you know, on a heavily illegitimate basis? Anyway, if governments around the world have been comfortable imposing really harsh lockdown restrictions on their populations in the name of public health and and personal health, why, why don't they feel comfortable imposing mandatory vaccination on the same populations, also in the name of public and personal health? And it's true. I mean, that seems to be really, this is the crux of what got us interested in this question, right? Mandatory lockdowns have been accepted and rolled out and and we've got quite used to them. Arguably, the evidence for vaccines is significantly stronger and the trade-offs fewer and clearer than the evidence for lockdowns. So you'd think just objectively, scientifically, it should be an easier decision in a sense. We should backtrack a second and say, you know, we're we're not coming at these questions as scientists. We're not coming at it as lawyers or or policymakers. It's pure philosophy, this question. We just want to look at the ethics of it for its own sake, unpick whether it would be justified. It's not about whether it's smart policy or legal. We'll we'll touch on that, but that's not really the focus. Yeah, actually, incidentally, interesting fact, in the US, it is legal. 
Um, there's actually precedent, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 1902. And they actually ruled, I'll try to find the exact words, the rights of the individual may at times under the pressures of great dangers be subjected to such restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the general public may demand. But this has such a public vector mm. that, um, that they actually ruled against the individual choice in this matter. So legally in the US, it's the case. Um, legally in the UK, maybe not legal as it stands, but it's worth pointing out that the UK does not have a written constitution. You know, we can make whatever we want legal, parliament is sovereign. Mm. Yeah. Um, that said, I, I actually, you know, just before going into the, the philosophy of it, I think practically it's probably not a good policy. Uh, my viewpoint is that it's it's moot to discuss beyond, you know, purely philosophical interest, whether it's justified, because in practice, it does seem that enough people will probably be willing to take it. You know, the, the success rates of the vaccines are, are exceptionally high, 90 plus, and most countries are seeing kind of 60 to 80 percent willingness in polling. Um, I know amongst my friends that most people are saying, you know, I'm happy for Boris Johnson to personally give me a shot in the ass if it means that if it means I can <laughs> go out again. And also, you know, in practical terms, we'll, you can simply enforce policies that effectively make it mandatory without kicking up all of the kind of fuss of, of you know, scaring people with it. You're you talking know, about kind of nudges, right? Yeah. So like can't travel without one. Ones, ones that are like that have the illusion of free choice. But in reality, you, you would have to live a incredibly constrained life in order to conserve this one choice. So the key there is whether it's ethically justifiable to do something is a very different question to whether it's legal or whether it's a smart policy politically or scientifically. We'll give an example, okay? Let's say Hapthor Bjornsson slept with my girlfriend. You could argue that I'm ethically justified in punching him in my distress. <laughs> the point is that does not mean, even if you'd agree like, yeah, it's okay to do that, you know, ethically, like it's understandable. That does not mean that I legally could it would still legally be assault, um, nor that it's practically a smart move on my part. It's it's probably better to find a way of you know getting my own back that involves a very large physical distance. Between us. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Anthony Bjornsson is um, he's like the world's strongest man, and he played the mountain in Game of Thrones. Yeah, and and by like, I'm Jake means literally, literally the world's strongest man. He has the world record deadlift at 501 kilograms, which is yeah a bit of a I'm going to put it out there, bit of a dick move to add only one kilo to the uh, <laughs> to the previous record held by Eddie Hall. Anyway, I'd rather that he didn't crush my skull with his bare hands. So mm -hmm. in that case, I'd probably get my own back from a distance. All right, so we're looking at ethics. You've illustrated that nicely with the example. Particularly in this episode, what we want to do is spend quite a lot of time drawing a sharp comparison between this question around mandatory vaccination and mandatory lockdowns. Yeah, I think that would be the, the main focus that we look at. If you haven't already listened to it, we did a whole episode on lockdowns back in the summer where we looked at whether lockdowns were morally justified. Check it out. Hashtag listen to more episodes. Um, <laughs> for, future, <laughs> for future listeners, the date of recording is 4th of January, 2021. But the pandemic has moved on since our lockdown episode back in August with Europe and America now suffering from um, second waves. To, to, to make a sweeping generalization about the pandemic more broadly, I mean, by and large, Asian countries with prior experience of pandemics or, or, or similar sort of epidemics, they've done a better job of handling things. We could probably attribute this to superior track and trace systems, better support for people who are made to self-isolate and probably as a direct consequence of the above, higher levels of compliance within the populations. So basically, they were just good at identifying subsets who need to be quarantined early, lock them down hard, rather than the kind of semi-hard blanket lockdowns uh, that most of Europe and America have, have, have tried that's led to risk of healthcare overwhelm. 
But maybe we're biased. Maybe that's a grass is greener thing looked at from the lens of being stuck in the middle of the pandemic in Europe. So. Also, not to mention the fact that I think probably the, the biggest factor in your success in responding to the pandemic is the extent to which you have a strong, like quick reaction. Uh, and in Asia, where they had a couple of size scares, um, you know, they weren't afraid to be seen to be quote unquote overreacting. Whereas in the Western world, we were very slow, like lockdowns were, as they kept saying, unprecedented. So to us, the idea of huge national restrictions, you know, the, the political embarrassment and the cost arguably didn't seem worthwhile. I don't think that we'll make that mistake again. Yeah, in everything will now policy, be precedented. <laughs> yeah, everything will be precedented, which is actually annoying because now every time a virus turns up, it's going to be like, oh my God, are we going to be locked down? In terms of policy approach, Asian countries were very good at applying soft blanket policies with hard targeted policies. Whereas we in the West have really struggled and ended up in the middle, kind of applying semi-hard, pretty much permanent policies across the board. Semi-hard blanket policies, which actually is, is, is kind of the worst of both worlds. In our episode on the ethics of lockdowns, we gave some reasons to be legitimately skeptical about extreme lockdowns as a go-to policy. According to the WHO's gold standard of epidemic pandemic response, at least before 2020, lockdowns weren't recommended after a virus was already in the wider population. They were a good targeted approach to achieve extermination. And in some places that was feasible, like New Zealand, right? That said, sometimes it seems when we're on the brink, what choice do we have but to panic and scramble? And <laughs> Boris Johnson's briefing notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, okay, minor point. I don't know if other people outside the UK know this. He sets time for press conferences and then he's late to them. I know, like, it's so you, you picked the time. Like, yeah. pick a time you can make. No one told you to do it at a certain time. Pick another time if you can't make it. Anyway, the problem with lockdowns uh, is that, you know, despite the intuition, which would obviously be, you know, if no one's out interacting, if I'm all, you know, if I'm making extreme efforts in my life, then, then you know, things have to get better, right? The problem is that there's some legitimate evidence, you know, from sources like The Lancet, that whilst lockdowns really do reduce infections, you know, there's some concern about the extent to which they can actually reduce negative outcomes like deaths or hospitalizations. And that's really counterintuitive, right? Um, but if you think about it, this would be because the disease affects people very, very differently. So if it's stopping infections that are mostly in groups where it doesn't really do harm, then it doesn't actually affect outcomes that matter, you know, hospitalizations and deaths. What our policies arguably should be focusing more on, and that even lockdown is kind of a a extremely non-targeted way of trying to achieve is stopping the vectors of transmission from other parts of the population to the vulnerable. Um, and, you know, there's some legitimate arguments as to why that would be very hard, you know, using policies other than lockdowns. But the thing is, general lockdowns just may not be very good at doing this. Um, even if you had everyone really strictly locked at home, if the sick still need to go to the hospital, uh, and essential workers still need to go to those hospitals and care homes and supermarkets and stuff. And our policies for identifying the sick in those places and shielding the vulnerable aren't good enough, or, or even worse, are lax because we're saying, oh, everyone's on lockdown, so you know we don't need to think about this too much and we don't need to do any targeted things here. Then the disease is still going to get to the, particularly the people that it really shouldn't. Whether a bunch of 20-year-olds who have minimal or no contact with senior citizens anyway go to the pub just doesn't empirically seem to matter much. But 
it does hugely matter to the wider economy because that pub gets no, no economic activity. Sorry, I shouldn't even mention pubs because then people are like, oh, it's just you wanted to go to the pub. No, no, no. Like the ability to see people is an important factor of mental health. We're now going to face a mental health crisis probably for the next two or three years. Interesting stat that I saw the other day, one in 10 people during lockdown in the UK were on antidepressants. Jesus, that's massive. Yeah. To be fair, I'm not sure what the number was before, but they did say it was like a peak. That said, you know, I said that there is some evidence of this. Yeah, the truth is it's all up in the air. Nothing can really be said with certainty at this point. Maybe it can in a year when we're looking back. And as you said earlier, you know, desperate times, like people are, governments are desperate to be seen to be doing something and people are desperate to feel like they're doing something. Mm. Um, but the point is there's some legitimate concerns around the efficacy and particularly the very serious negative side effects of lockdowns. But yes, the stated aim of, them, of, of those policies is to buy time and limit healthcare overcrowding. Um, and and that, that healthcare overcrowding is, is a big problem. Like we said, the UK healthcare system hits overcrowding levels in the best of winters, or at least it has since the uh, government has mm. underfunded it for the last decade. Mm. Damn you, austerity. But um, thanks to flu season and other respiratory diseases, Januarys are always bad. In the UK, at least, lockdowns are back. Now, the UK government has basically put all its eggs in the vaccination basket. That is to say it's unwritten policy or... Perhaps it is written somewhere. On Boris Johnson's lunchbox. (laughs) (laughs) On the napkin he takes to his press conference (laughs) that he's an hour late for. Basically, uh, that strategy seems to be that our best hope of getting out of this pandemic is to vaccinate enough people that we can avoid risk of the virus overwhelming the NHS. And then we can relax the policies around lockdown and social distancing and steadily return life to normal. Eventually, enough people will be vaccinated that herd immunity will be achieved, i.e. the virus won't be able to spread from existing hosts to new hosts because too many people were vaccinated and ultimately it will die down to less harmful levels. So that means that vaccines are the key to getting out of this mess. Um, one quick irony that I find, you know, the UK is trying to claim, I remember they were trying to claim victory with the first vaccine because they were the first to approve it, right? The first vaccine that was approved, the Pfizer-BioNTech one, was developed by Turkish immigrants to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> it's the two things we hate, the risk of Turkish immigrants and the EU. <laughs> <laughs> To clarify, I do not hate those things. I'm talking about 52% of the country who voted for Brexit. Brexit, take back control. Yeah, thank God we've taken back control. Uh, Anyway. The point of this, the implication here, vaccines seem to be the real key to getting out of this whole situation. They are the exit strategy. That's lots of context and where we're at in the present day. To break down briefly how we're going to structure this episode, first of all, we'll do what we always do. Really quick look at some definitions. We've covered a lot of that in the context. We'll start our philosophical investigation by arguing by analogy. We don't need to agree on a moral framework if we can agree that X is justified, X is like Y, therefore Y is justified. So we'll consider if mandatory lockdowns are justified, why aren't mandatory vaccinations, as well as any side questions therein. We'll look at why the analogy works and reasons this might be true ethically, but we'll also look at where the analogy fails and reasons why this might be false. Right. And then we'll also quickly take a look more from the ground up and tackle this question you know, from a consequentialist and a deontological perspective. Uh, if you've listened to previous episodes, the, that terminology should uh, be familiar. But if this is your first one, don't worry, we'll, we'll briefly explain them when we come to them. Yeah, there are many, many frameworks or schools of thought that we could use to break down this question. But broadly, they'll fall under one of those two umbrellas, consequentialist or deontological And, you know, we want this to be a podcast for everyone, not just for philosophers. After all, 2020 has made everyone an armchair philosopher and an armchair epidemiologist. Before we dive in, some quick housekeeping. We've launched a newsletter and a Patreon. Woo! Oh my God. So if you like the show, do consider signing up to both of those. The newsletter will pop up to let you know new episodes are out, give you a brief summary of the arguments, help you organize your own thoughts around it. And it'll also include some good philosophical memes and jokes. 
the patron is basically to help us just fund the equipment and uh, grow the show since the better it does the more we can justify spending time on it really we're busy guys we've got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on uh, hmm. also it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside to get that show support <laughs> thank you in particular to manos for his subscription our number one fan yeah big big shout out if you're listening to this big m much love uh, and lastly as always do check out our, our the businesses that we run. Stasher, if you ever need to store your luggage, lets you book with a local shop or hotel in uh, 250 cities around the world. I appreciate that, you know, given lockdown circumstances, stash safely. <laughs> Three Points is a carbon offsetting platform uh, which allows you to offset your carbon uh, and rewards you in the process, allows you to build up points that you can spend with eco-friendly partners so you can further support the green economy. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So let's begin with the definitions. We're asking, would it be ethically justifiable to make a COVID vaccine mandatory? Uh, a vaccine, to give you a little, a little bit of spiel, is a biological preparation that provides active acquired immunity to a particular infectious disease. Duh. Um, a vaccine <laughs> typically contains an agent that resembles a disease causing microorganism. Basically, it's a little weak version of the disease that lets your body be like, oh, I know how to fight this thing. The agent stimulates the body's immune system. They recognize that agent, destroy it, and then they're all trained up and ready to destroy the real deal when it happens. We're not scientists, and that definition literally came from Wikipedia. So we're just going to assume... Some ad-libbing ad from me there as well, though. Yeah, we're going to assume you understand enough about vaccines. We're definitely not going to get into the specifics of how the COVID vaccines or the different mm -hmm. variations, how they specifically work. The other definition that we talked about is lockdowns. Lockdowns are a blanket form of mass quarantine in which people's freedom of movement is heavily restricted in the name of public health. Uh, and it's not a choice. It's the law. In the huh. UK, for example, lots of non-essential businesses were ordered to shut down. Basically, anyone who wasn't a supermarket. For a period, gyms and stuff were allowed, but even they aren't allowed anymore. The idea, of course, is to quote unquote, stop the spread. God, that sounds ominous. <laughs> yes, it is ominous. Uh, if people don't come into contact with each other, then surely the virus can't spread, right? That's the theory in practice. You know, like we said, don't know whether that works because people still got to go to hospitals and still got to eat, right? And they've still got to get their eyes tested at Barnard Castles. Mm, yes. Famously, the UKPM's kind of puppet master, the guy kind of behind the, you know, pulling the strings behind the scene, drove across the country to drop his family off and then took a trip to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight on his wife's anniversary. Hmm, yeah, sure. They really embraced it in their marketing though. They, they even partnered with Specsavers and it became one of the surprise best-selling tourist attractions of 2020. We'll have to, we'll have to get a stash point set up there, mate. We will, we will. Back to the question. The second part of the question was around things being ethically justified, right? Super simply, that just means we would, you know, consider it consistent with the quote unquote right thing to do. Um, and determining the right thing is, is the job of moral deliberation. Uh, again, right doesn't mean legal or practical or, or not even necessarily good, depending on your view of morality. For example, it might be right, but not good to tell someone a painful truth where a white lie would suffice. Yeah, exactly. So those are some super quick definitions. We, we spoke so much earlier that we'll, we've kept it brief with another times. Mm. Anyway, let's start with that analogical approach. Mandatory lockdowns versus mandatory vaccines. 
you know, let's discuss why this is a good analogy. We've said lockdowns or uh, mandatory lockdowns or policy in the name of public health. Uh, specifically, they're designed to reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus. The vaccines which have been developed at record speed this year with more collaboration between international scientists than the world has ever seen before, but who needs that? That's why we Brexited. <laughs> are, also being, are also being made in the name of public health. Specifically, they're designed to immunize people with priority given to the vulnerable, uh, because in theory, if enough people are vaccinated, the virus will dwindle or die out. Okay, so I, th I think the analogy is pretty clear, right? If anything, lockdowns offer a necessarily temporary solution, because as soon as the virus flares up, you know, you require further lockdowns again and again. Whereas in theory, once you take the full course of a vaccine, that should generate lasting immunity. It's possible with the vaccine that some people might require top ups, or, you know, it might become like an annual medical intervention like the flu jab. But the key thing is in terms of the impact on your life and your freedom, the vaccine looks like a far better long term solution than continued lockdowns do. And that begs the question that's really been bothering us. If governments were happy to mandate lockdowns, why aren't they happy to mandate the vaccine? It, it's a better solution. From where we're sitting, the vaccine looks like a much more effective policy response with fewer and clearer costs. It's pretty much been the UK's unspoken aim. Now, there are some really good reasons why this is a good analogy. In philosophy, a good analogy needs to be familiar and representative. Lockdowns are very familiar, thanks to the year we've all lived through. But I'd also say they're very representative because the policies are literally targeting the same problem. So they're two means of combating the same issue. They're also representative because really the, the kind of trade-off that they represent is similar. Lockdowns impinge on our private freedoms in the name of a public good. Uh, we talked about this in our previous episode. Uh, lockdowns restrict our ability to move, to work, to travel, to socialize in the real world. But you're welcome to do it in the world of Warcraft. <laughs> a mandatory vaccine would also impinge on our private freedom. Um, but it's a different sort of freedom. It would remove our freedom to choose whether we want to be injected with a foreign body. That makes it sound so much scarier. Uh, <laughs> it, it removes our choice of whether we want to accept that uh, in the name of our personal and, and public health. Um, however, if vaccines coincide with the relaxation of restrictions, and it seems possible at this point that policymakers may look to use this incentive, then vaccines not only are in the public interest, but actually can promote your personal freedom. They can be a ticket to living a normal life. So one question people can and will definitely try to levy against this argument is the efficacy of the policy. Uh, so, you know, I'd argue that this is a question you could levy against lockdowns as much as you could against vaccines. In both cases, basically what we're saying is we're trusting scientists' superior understanding of the virus. In a perfect world, a 14-day global lockdown could in theory kill off this coronavirus entirely. But because the requirements of healthcare and supply chains and the sort of necessary movement that sustains life on the planet... It's never really been possible to truly limit the movement of all people. Sick people still need to go to hospital. Hospitals still need to be staffed. Everyone needs to eat. People need to rave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eat, sleep, rave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, jokes aside, lockdowns aren't a perfect response given the complexities of real life. But they may be the best available given the information. But in general, people asking this will be attacking the efficacy of vaccines, not lockdowns. Uh, to which our, our answer has to basically follow the same lines. There's no way the vaccines will be perfect. They won't work on everyone, but if they work as prescribed, then on average, they'll do an effective job. And based on the large scale studies to date, that's the expected outcome. And it's worth saying that those studies or the way that we study vaccines is, is much more established, much clearer, uh, and if anything, much more in favor of the safety of vaccines than they are uh, of the, you know, 
net positive benefit of lockdowns. Because, yeah, parallel to that, another criticism of the analogy that people might make would be vaccines could have unintended side effects. And, you know, side effects are a feature of a lot of medical interventions like vaccines. But like you say, they're extremely closely studied. And as we said, as with the previous point, the questions that you pose to one part of the analogy need to be posed to the other. Lockdowns also had a ton of negative side effects, most notably social isolation, mental health crisis, uh, bankruptcy, and perhaps worst of all, the harms and deaths it caused to people with unrelated medical conditions who were in some cases not able to, or in really tragic ways, chose not to seek help or treatment for the conditions that they had due to COVID. Yeah, that makes me the most sad. Can you imagine people staying at home like with serious heart conditions thinking I need to protect the NHS <laughs> when when that's the point where you, know, you, you, you entirely need it the most? I think yeah. it's really tragic. So interesting point, deaths in homes are roughly two times up year on year in the UK. Um, and that's deaths not with COVID on the death certificate. Um, fact check me on that one because that was correct. Last time I saw that was a few months ago, but they're up. Um, also not to focus on sensationalized stories. We, you know, it's much more important to look at large scale trends than to look at individual sad stories. But you know, it, <laughs> if you don't think there are negative side effects to lockdown, I really challenge you to talk to the parents of students who committed suicide this year while locked in their university halls like prisons uh, and to try and argue with them that lockdowns had nothing to do with it. To some extent, we've all experienced some of the issues that have been mentioned in this kind of last section to greater or lesser degrees in 2020 and can understand that there are definitely negative side effects to lockdowns. Yeah, exactly. So for the most part, I'd say it's a pretty good analogy. And it's one we've genuinely, we've given a lot of thought to because it's really been puzzling us. Most any concern with a mandatory vaccine can and should be legitimately levied with equal consideration to mandatory lockdowns. And overall, you know, the takeaway or our feeling seems to be that X is sufficiently similar to Y. So if X is justified, Y must surely be justified too, right? In fact, as we mentioned earlier on, uh, we mentioned a, a UK government select committee published findings working with ethicists from Oxford University um, they actually came to this exact determination. So to clarify that, they didn't just say, oh, it's ethically justified to make vaccines mandatory. They said one can't be justified without the other also being justified. Here's a weird one for you. This whole argument is a little bit akin to the Christian perspective on abortion. I, I often think that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so often the case. <laughs> a fetus is a child so you can't justify abortion without justifying infanticide infanticide is wrong so therefore abortion is wrong that's that's the crux of the argument one can't be justified without the other so a valid takeaway from this argument may not be that vaccines are justified as a mandatory policy but that we were wrong about lockdowns being justified okay yeah so so the the christian perspective is similar in that it's argument by analogy where we don't even need to articulate our moral framework in order to kind of use what we agree is moral to determine other things that should be moral yeah, exactly. or, or immoral. But, um, but looking at the abortion example again, right? If we think about the way that most people who are pro-abortion, <laughs> pro-choice, I can, I can see from a branding perspective uh, why they went with pro-choice. <laughs> um, but yeah, the way that pro-choice campaigners will ethically justify abortions uh, without justifying infanticide will hinge on either some ethical difference between fetuses and babies, i.e. fetuses aren't people yet, so they don't have the rights that babies have, or some superseding right of the mother over her body. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, I guess the question, because we should, we should apply the same logic here, uh, the question is, what if we can similarly identify and articulate 
a way in which lockdowns are not like vaccines and hence the analogy is not relevant or a, a superseding right that's more important. So, you know, to give an example, can we explain why X is not like Y in some way that is relevant to our moral argument? Um, and to this end, I think the aspect that most will argue breaks the analogy is that lockdowns are not a medical intervention that actually interferes with your physical body or with your consciousness. In other words, mandatory vaccines impinge on the sense of the kind of sanctity of the human body that we have, which is a whole other class of intervention, which we generally seem to consider unacceptable. Hence, even when there's anti-vaxxers with, you know, pure conspiracy theories, their reasoning, we still respect their choice over what they do with their body, right? Okay, so that's to say that we generally think people should have ultimate freedom of choice over their body, and that we can't compel people in that regard. It's why outside of a situation where you aren't fit to make a decision for yourself, your medical practitioner will always give you choices. People can choose not to take chemotherapy, for example, or in some cases, like uh, I want to say Jehovah's Witnesses, they can refuse resuscitation or blood transfusions for religious reasons. Right. Um, and it's the same reason why we believe that it's okay to lock up a pedophile for life, but absolutely wrong to chemically castrate them and release them back into the world. Need <laughs> Does it sound like a sort of zoo rewilding program? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, the thing is, you don't need consent to physically restrict those people, right? I.e. imprison them. But you do seem to need consent to make a bodily change. So, so perhaps that's the issue because I articulated that around consent, right? We, we can't force people to take a vaccine without their consent because we can't force people to have bodily interventions without consent. So, okay, you say that about consent, but we do literally have laws that allow, for example, medical intervention in the event of a mental health crisis. You can be sedated and otherwise medicated in that circumstance. And that reference to the Mental Health Act is the same connection that those Oxford ethicists drew. Or, as you mentioned, in medical circumstances where you're not in a fit state to make a decision and you haven't made preferences clear prior, like if you're in a coma. So maybe consent alone doesn't quite explain this. Yeah. So maybe maybe consent isn't quite sufficient. You know, in fact, aside from reasonable circumstances where seeking consent just isn't possible, uh, there are many circumstances where someone consenting to something, you know, some sort of bodily intervention uh, being done or not done to their body or conscious state may still, as some people would say, it may not respect to the sanctity of human dignity, even beyond the sanctity of autonomy over your body. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, and these are real examples from uh, Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Limits of Markets or What Money Can't Buy. If someone consents to have an ad tattooed on their forehead, should companies be able to pay to do that? Um, or consents to be killed and eaten by another person, or in the case, you know, where a healthy middle-aged man chooses to commit suicide. We might argue that even though there's, you know, arguably consent there, something is still wrong. And in all these cases, even if we could prove that the people in question were of sound mind and making the decision they truly wanted to make, we may say that they're not respecting human dignity. Note that I make the distinction of, you know, quote-unquote, if they're of sound mind. It's kind of a funny perspective here because basically, semantically, we define a lot of mental health around certain behaviors we consider acceptable and label aberrations as mental illness. It begs the question whether, you know, could an otherwise healthy person ever convince a psychiatrist that they want to do any of those things, you know, get a tattoo on their forehead. That's the least extreme example, but <laughs> crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Be killed and eaten or, or commit suicide that they want to do those things without being labeled mentally unwell, 
right? Or, uh, you know, do we just have a natural feeling as to what constitutes human dignity and just label things outside of that as mental illness? Um, if we define any of the behavior as such, aren't we just using our intuition to drew, draw those lines? So the argument there is that some would say people have a duty to respect not just other people's bodily autonomy, but bodies in general. So there are some things you can't, you just can't consent to while respecting your dignity. This is an argument is somewhat familiar, not only in the work of Kant, which who says humans as rational creatures should never be treated as means to ends even by themselves with their own consent, but in religion too. Consider the fact that most religions prohibit suicide, certain defamations of the body, like Judaism prohibits tattoos. And there's often an articulation that you are given temporary custody of this body by God, the ultimate owner, and must hence treat it with respect and take good care of it. You may trash your body no more than the manager of an office may trash his office. Say that to our office manager. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um, but, okay, so that was kind of some that was some interesting philosophical wondering. Let's try bring this back a bit more closely to what we were saying about vaccines and, and how this draws this may draw a distinction between mandatory vaccines and mandatory lockdowns, right? The difference between vaccines and lockdowns may seem to be that we enter this kind of realm of direct bodily intervention. And we can kind of relate this to the case of prisoners. It's considered acceptable to trap them in a cage for indeterminate lengths of time, but deeply unacceptable to physically, chemically, or psychologically alter them without their consent. It's why films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest are so disturbing. Oh my God, yeah. You know, some of this you might think hinges on consent, but in fact, only part of this hinges on consent. Part of this goes even beyond that and, and perhaps hinges on some conception of human dignity. Many would say that even if it was subject to free choice, giving pedophiles the option of being chemically castrated to avoid or reduce their prison sentence would be deeply unethical, uh, that we shouldn't even present the option to consent to that. If someone said yes, we would arguably label them as mentally ill. So I can see how that may mean that mandating bodily interventions by vaccines may be unjustifiable. That's the distinction we're, we're drawing at the moment. And intuitively, that, that's, that's the one that kind of comes to mind if you try and articulate a difference between lockdowns and vaccines. However, mm -hmm. there are two counter arguments that I'm interested in. For one, surely there must be examples of when the non-bodily invasive interventions, which are seemingly okay, are just intuitively worse. I mean, surely if it's life in prison or a pill that's proven to work in modulating violent mood swings with minimal side effects, the latter is better than the life sentence. Plus, those non-bodily invasive actions must have indirect effects, which essentially make them somewhat bodily. Like there's no way that locking someone up for life, aside from restricting them physically, doesn't change them as a person. So you've definitely in that way made an intervention in their psyche. So that point is non-bodily interventions still have a big impact on people, possibly worse in cases than if there were a simple medical intervention. Exactly, so that's, that's one to explore. Uh, and second, is there some argument that vaccines should fall into the category where akin to suicide, it's not respecting human dignity to allow people to reject them? at least not on the current basis, which is <laughs> conspiracy theory. So if people reject a vaccine, they risk the spread of this disease, which is a pandemic that's brought the world to a standstill. So consent may not be needed to mandate intervention if we consider it that important. I mean, even beyond the suicide example, where it's clear you know, that you should intervene in that case, now we have the added fact that we need to consider respecting public health more widely. That latter point on public health is exactly what caused that Supreme Court ruling you mentioned earlier to say that Massachusetts could mandate vaccines in 1902, and it set the legal precedent. So basically what we're saying there is, if we can intervene in a suicide that someone is seemingly consenting to in the interest of that person's health, 
then why couldn't we somehow fit vaccines into the same category as that sort of intervention, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, let's first talk about the first point, which was that some non-bodily interventions may actually be worse or may indirectly become bodily interventions. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It seems incongruous to say we can never interfere with other people's bodily autonomy, quote unquote, but that it's okay to, you know, inflict huge restrictions on meaningful forms of freedom, for example, locking someone up for life, you know, likewise, to mandate everyone stays home for a year, but not mandate a very safe vaccine kind of fits that analogy. Uh, there are different types of intervention, but it clearly becomes worse at some point and clearly becomes to affect your body indirectly. I mean, you're effectively removing tons of choices and consents, like what you eat or wear or how you can effectively express yourself when you lock someone up in a prison under lockdown. I don't have a choice about patronizing certain restaurants, using the gym, or rather I have the choice removed regarding the relative risks and trade-offs to my enjoyment and mental health versus my COVID risk and the public good. Exactly. So lockdowns have had and will have a profound effect on people. Those effects aren't uniquely good or bad. The positives are, I guess, that we've all been less exposed to this particular virus and other infectious diseases. And, you know, personally, lockdowns have driven me to be more mindful about sleep and diet and exercise. But then some forms of exercise, like playing football, are currently prohibited, which sucks. And the social aspect of lockdown is terrible. I mean, I'm grateful this happened at a time when video calls are mainstream, but it's, it's no substitute for physical human interaction and human contact. So on balance all that, I'd be inclined to say that the effect of a year on lockdown on my person, that's probably more impactful than the effect a vaccine would slash will have. I mean, talking about the effect of a year of lockdown on your dignity, it, it does make you feel a bit like a zoo animal, right? Well, I, especially I, I, when you come around and like, watch me. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Throw peanuts at you. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying here is it's, it's tempting to make a distinction between the two on the basis of, you know, the, the, the sanctity of the human body. But in reality, the lines are blurrier than, than it might seem, right? Like, possibly what's really going on is that the idea of vaccines make people feel squeamish. They, they don't like the idea of it, right? I said earlier, one of the articulations you gave made it you know, the injection of a foreign body. Um, mm. Most people might be happy to take a vaccine, but the idea of not having a choice in being injected with a serum, even for your own good, it, it feels dystopian. I mean, perhaps the, the major issue is just that slippery slope argument. Mm. Um, but that said, lockdowns also feel dystopian. Um, but something about the physical and minorly painful nature of the interventions feels different. Yeah. And this is the trouble. I mean, we shouldn't confuse squeamishness with moral reasoning. So here's a quick side question. Would the vaccine question feel any different if it weren't an injection, but was like a pill or something? Is it a suppository? <laughs> Would you like it to be? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We can always try. <laughs> Better do both, just in case. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. There's nothing painful or squeam-inducing about a pill, but it's nature as an enforced medical intervention is a very similar quality to vaccination morally, right? I don't think that really changes things. In fairness, a lot of people railed against the idea of lockdown, including the UK government itself for a brief period way back in March, because they felt that the infringement upon our liberty was too high a price to pay. And something of that attitude is still reflected in the way the UK government was for a long time, much more reluctant than its European neighbours to enforce the laws. I mean, We've rarely seen the police or the army out on the streets trying to make people stay home. They kind of wanted everyone to opt in for the collective good. You know, they wanted it to be like, it's your choice. We're not going to sort of force it, but we really, really, really want you to, to do it. Mm -hmm. I, what I mean to say here is it's possible that over time, the idea of lockdown has just become more familiar to us. And therefore, we don't question or fight it so much. And in fact, you almost have this sort of Stockholm syndrome effect of people want more of it. 
So our norm of what's acceptable has shifted. And therefore, possibly the same would be true of the vaccine. After everyone's taken the first dose, perhaps nobody would question having to take the second or next year's update. Then again, the same could apply for future diseases. So it's kind of a moral step change. And we have to ask if we're prepared to take it. You mentioned an update. When you said updates, you did, of course, mean a software update for Bill Gates' microchips, right? (laughs) Exactly. For some reason, that seems to be the most prevalent conspiracy concern around the vaccine, doesn't it? It's so silly because I remember we were talking about this. You said like Elon Musk is making chips that go in pigs' brains, right? And it's like, if Bill Gates is like, I'm, I'm trying to cure sick people. And everyone's like, he's trying to put chips in us. And Elon Musk, Elon Musk is like, I'm trying to put chips in you. And everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's so hypocritical. Can't wait to get chipped. Yeah. Everyone's really excited about Neuralink. Some people are. I, I think with Bill Gates, I was looking into this because I was just curious. as like, where, where the hell this emerged from? It seems to just be a symptom of the fact that he's done a lot of work on disease eradication through the work of the foundation, mm. right? Um, So let's look at that second counter argument you raised. So this was that letting people reject the vaccine would be wrong in the same way we don't let people uh, choose to commit suicide. Uh, I can certainly see that that being a totally valid argument if we we take the kind of human dignity factor as having some serious moral basis. And maybe it really hinges on that public health factor too. That's that's what that Supreme Supreme Court relied on, right? And that actually makes it a little distinct from suicide. Mm, Okay. But in that case, what does human dignity mean? I mean, I really like it as a phrase. It literally forms the basis of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in the era immediately after World War II and the Holocaust, respect for human dignity became, that was the fundamental concept to building a better world. I, I, so I suppose to articulate it at its most basic, the concept of human dignity is the belief that all people hold a special value that's tied solely to their humanity. It has nothing to do with class, race, gender, religion, abilities, or any other factor other than them being human. Uh, The original meaning of the word dignity established that someone deserved respect because of their status. Uh, And in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that you mentioned, that concept was kind of turned on its head. Article one states, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Uh, Simply by being human, all people deserve respect human rights naturally spring from that dignity. So on the face of it, that sounds really nice. However, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue about. That's the annoying thing. It's hard to argue against something that sounds nice, right? Like mm. you, you can have legitimate concerns with the concept of human rights, but do you want to be that guy who's arguing against human rights? <laughs> However, it is our solemn duty in this podcast to question everything, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> and if human dignity, if that's the concept that stands in the way of our best chance out of this pandemic and out of working from home, <laughs> then maybe, maybe it's deserving of a bit more scrutiny. Yeah, fair. Fortunately for you guys, we did some scrutiny. Uh, or scru- scrutinizing, rather. Uh, an interesting place to begin uh, is the worth of Ruth Macklin. Um, she hates humans. No, <laughs> that's a joke. She's a, sorry, that's not defamation. She's actually great. Uh, she's a bioethicist who wrote a controversial paper titled Dignity is a Useless Concept. And as someone who, who themselves likes to question things, I, I totally respect that. Uh, in it, she claims bioethics has done just fine with the concept of personal autonomy. The idea that because all humans have the same minimum capacity to suffer, prosper, reason, and choose, no human has the right to impinge on the life, body, or freedom of another. This is why informed consent serves as the bedrock of ethical research and practice. Once you recognize the principle of personal autonomy, dignity just doesn't seem to add anything to it. As is the case of this whole argument, it it actually just seems to throw up obstacles. 
And it's not just the semantics that bothered Macklin. At the turn of the century, when she wrote this article, lots of people were growing uncomfortable with scientific developments that they saw as, quote unquote, potentially impinging human dignity, arguably with no basis. There are groups in history that have applied and, and probably still do uh, a kind of, you know, against human dignity argument to IVF, for example, which is now very normal. Uh, and other advances, it's kind of hard to argue, are other, something other than positive. So her argument is that dignity doesn't add much to the concepts of autonomy and consent. If anything, all it does is muddy the waters, and it gives people who are uncomfortable with scientific progress a get-out clause for resisting that change. For example, religions and traditionally conservative groups and or people who are just, just like uncomfortable with the state yeah. of science. So basically, it has a thin veil of moral legitimacy and Actually, what it's doing is allowing anti-vaxxers to bring measles back to the US. In, in the current context, that is, yep, that's exactly the extension of that claim. And like we said, it just doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add anything. And it's not consistent when it's, oh, we can lock people up for life, but we can't force people to do a, a public health intervention that's in their own interest. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that interesting from Ruth. Uh, some other points to raise. Uh, these come from Steven Pinker. So first of all, as he as he points out, dignity is relative. We can see that through time and, and through different places, different concepts of what is dignified have kind of evolved and changed. In fairness, the concept used to found human rights really just means we should respect people equally, as it was in that article, right? It doesn't say, we do try to set out what those things are, but they change. For example, you could argue that access to the internet is a human right. That would have made no sense in the 1500s. Um, he also points out that dignity is fungible, by which he means sometimes we, we have to do undignified things, like getting out of a small car looking like a clown, uh, <laughs> or letting security guards frisk us, but that doesn't mean that we're overall not living dignified lives. And he says also that dignity can be harmful, in the sense that we often accord too much dignity to, for example, celebrities, uh, you know, ultimately despots. It is insane that we have an example of someone who literally made that transition. Um, <laughs> Stop the count. Stop the count. I just need 11 and a half thousand more votes. <laughs> These are all about Trump in case you don't follow. Anyway, it, it actually lends undue weight to, to their ideas of policies. This is actually something I recall that we've argued about a lot, right? Mm. And maybe it's one that we should discuss in an episode. For a long time, Angelina Jolie, for example, was a human rights advocate for the UN, right? And, and in one sense, she has a big audience, so it kind of makes sense. Uh, and, you know, it, in consequential terms, it makes, it makes total moral sense. But in some other sense, are we according too much dignity to a celebrity? Like, is not just a white woman in the US, but in an extremely wealthy celebrity white woman in the US, do they really know anything of the human rights issues that women face in Africa and India in areas of extreme poverty. Like, yes, they can go visit it, but do they, do they really know anything about that lived experience? Are we affording them too much dignity to afford them those positions? Also, we could say that, for example, religious repressions have often been rationalized as a defense of religious dignity. For example, the Crusades. So basically, it's possible that dignity as a concept is unfit for the heavy moral demands we place upon it. And if that's the case, is dignity relevant to our question about the vaccine? Basically, we're saying, what if a moral articulation of quote-unquote human dignity is just bunk? To what extent are the ideas of what it is to respect human dignity basically just a collection of norms and intuitions which are totally subject to change over time, not consistent across people? What if some people listened to some of the above stuff that we said and thought, actually, those, those things aren't wrong? Like, you know, what if some people listening to the above actually thought, 
you know what? I don't see anything wrong with castrating pedos. I mean, it, <laughs> a little harsh, but I'm sure that there's going to be some number of uh, listeners who had that voice in their head. Um, mm. It's really just intuitions as to what is and isn't human dignity. For example, torture is now considered against human dignity, but there was a time when it was considered an important criminal deterrent or necessary in some circumstances around uh, international espionage. Many still think that way. And I mean, is there some like kind of going on about this, like trying to say if it exists, you know, if it exists, there should be some way to derive the full set of, of rules for respecting human dignity, right? Or, or otherwise, it's maybe not a useful concept, even if it's true, because we can't derive them. And should they change or ever be overridden by other concerns? Like, are they absolute? Uh, we try to, to, you know, get the full set of rules by writing down a bunch of human rights. But is that really some sort of moral articulation of having found the perfect set? Or really just a practical way for the international community to, to pressure some countries, you know, who are being cruel with a actual legal stick as opposed to a moral one. So it's, it forms more of a legal basis is what you're saying. Like it's, it's useful just as a way of. Yeah, perhaps it's more useful as a legal tool than as a moral tool. In fairness, even if we do want to reject dignity as a concept, let's say we took Macklin's approach instead and we use personal autonomy as the moral foundation for this argument. I suppose you'd agree, you'd have to agree that mandatory vaccinations, that would go against people's personal autonomy. So you, you, you couldn't justify it. But I guess then sticking to the analogy point, you'd have to say the same for lockdowns, right? Exactly. The point is that may be true, but you know, there may be some coherent, for example, overall consequentialist approach, which explains it. And there's not some special place for vaccines that doesn't apply to lockdowns. Uh, so then we're back to the same place we were, which is, well, if lockdowns are legitimate, maybe these vaccines should be, or mandatory lockdowns, mandatory vaccines should be, or we have to accept that maybe mandatory lockdowns wasn't right. I said that it might be more coherent to take an overall consequentialist approach. That's highly contingent. You know, you don't, there, there's no hard and fast rules that always apply. Um, you know, we may consider some general rules that are good to follow for midterm utility and norms that we want to promote, like generally don't torture, generally don't force people to accept medical interventions, but they're not strictly enshrined. It's, it's all dependent on the circumstances and how, how, you know, how dire the needs are. Mm, a good question. So this is perhaps a good time to move on to discussing the consequentialist perspective. Right, okay. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> so we'll try and keep this section quick. I think the kind of analogy of, of lockdowns and vaccines was really the more interesting point. But um, some speedy definitions, consequentialism simply means you're looking at the outcomes of a decision or expected outcomes to decide whether it's good or bad. That's where we're going to start and then we'll follow on with some with like deontology deontology just means like you basically set up a bunch of moral rules and you always have to follow those rules no matter what or at least in the strictest form that's what it means uh, outcomes are not relevant so you know for example in consequentialism can you kill someone it depends can i kill someone in war yes can i kill someone in self-defense yes it all depends on whether it leads to outcomes that we consider to be morally good um in deontology you might argue, no, you're never allowed to kill. So it's wrong in both those circumstances, depending how strict your, your view on those rules are. It could be generally no, but there are a couple caveats to the rule that in which it might be okay, such as war uh, or self-defense. Really, it kind of depends because these are broad terms for a huge number of, of moral frameworks. So in terms of consequentialism, it looks like mandatory vaccination is better, at least for public health, which you'd think, given the circumstance, means it's morally the best option too. However, discussing all this stuff on dignity has made me realize a big reason governments resist this is that variation on the slippery slope argument, which you mentioned. 
They worry that mandatory vaccinations would set a precedent for changes that people will be even more uncomfortable with, and that will totally undermine their popularity or credibility. And obviously a big factor for governments is PR. Yeah. So even though mandatory vaccinations could, on average, mean greater uptake and a a faster suppression of the virus, conversely, it could just be bad policy. Uh, Whether it's right or wrong, it will kick up a huge PR nightmare and it will probably, it could lead to less overall vaccination. It lead to wasted time arguing over it. Uh, and more vocal dissidents and time being given to anti-vax people uh, and a fear of government encroachment. Uh, there are easier ways to achieve the same thing with a softer touch. So consequentialist perspective may say they're the right way to go. Uh, also, undermining the norm of respecting individual freedoms and the sanctity of one's own body can, in the midterm, arguably not be the best way to maximize good. Now, we've more or less covered the deontological approach already above. Humans should be ends in themselves, so you can never justify removal of their autonomy even if the end is in their own interest. However, conversely, each individual should have a duty to individually take the vaccine as per the categorical imperative, if you accept the desired end of promoting public health. And there's a world of difference between everyone having a duty to do something and the government literally forcing everyone to do something. Yeah, I think in practice, this seems to be the approach that we'll actually see taken. And also to to clarify that deontological argument, that is actually entirely consistent with what we came to on the lockdown episode, right? We came to the conclusion that individuals have a duty to, you know, behave responsibly in lockdown as much as is reasonably possible, but governments are not in a place to enforce them because to enforce them is to turn people into means to ends, right? So I can never tell people, I need you to do X because it achieves Y. People, rational creatures are the end in themselves. That's the argument, at least, of famous rules-based moralists such as Kant, K-A-N-T, who's very, very famous. And in Um, practice, this seems to be the approach that they'll probably take with the vaccination question. They'll run strong information campaigns encouraging people to take the vaccine without ever making it mandatory in law. Ethical dilemmas are obviously at their most pertinent when they actually affect you. So it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this episode ages in time. But to wrap it up, and do you think a mandatory vaccine is ethically justified? You personally. Put me on the spot there, mate. Um, (laughs) And the script literally just says ants answer here. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the truth is it's not, it's never yes, no, right? Um, Do I think mandatory vaccines are ethically justified if lockdowns are? Yes. Do I think lockdowns are ethically justified? No. I actually kind of come to that deontological perspective where I actually think that people have an individual duty, um, but governments shouldn't force people to adhere to that duty. However, ironically, that answer kind of has like a, a consequentialist edge in that this is me saying this knowing that there's not really a need. Let's say, for example, expected uptake was 10%, right? In that case, then actually, yeah, I think it would, I think it would be totally ethically justified uh, from a consequentialist perspective. Like the, the overwhelming benefit and need would just supersede people's right to make a bad decision. Yeah, I mean, no surprise, I, I pretty much completely agree with you. I think the analogy is quite persuasive and we unpicked it pretty thoroughly, but my opinion is that it's the responsible thing to do for people to take the vaccine, um, mm. but for the government to make it law would... Well, it's interesting. I, I like that the ethical panel said that if lockdown are ethically justified at being mandatory, then then vaccines should too. At, at, at least I think there's consistency there. And I think mm. the way that we find consistency is probably in saying that um, 
lockdowns yeah. probably as a mandatory measure weren't necessarily justified themselves. But nevertheless, yeah. it's the responsible thing to do for people to to abide. Them. Yeah. So basically, I think we kind of err towards that that perspective of people have duty but shouldn't be forced. But the specific context of vaccines, i.e. less side effects, so clearly more effective, makes us say, actually, it's a little bit different to lockdowns because from a consequential perspective, they just would work better. But also from a consequential perspective, it would probably mire us like in a, you know, a bunch of wasted time arguing with either anti-vax people or people with more legitimate concerns. Speaking of more legitimate concerns, I just want to quickly say, why did it come out so quickly? Because we were so, so focused on it. They still did large trials, huge numbers of people. Admittedly, there are no long-term trials because it's not been out for a long time, but still the chance of there being serious issues only in the long term is kind of relatively low. Uh, and you have to balance that against the risk of getting the virus and never getting out of uh, these states of lockdown. Yeah, it's an expediency trade-off, isn't it? They're yep. prioritizing distribution to the most vulnerable groups and to frontline workers, healthcare workers at mm. the beginning anyway. So um, it's one of those things where you're, you're trading off those benefits against the potential long-term risks. Right. Yeah. Okay, we'll wrap that up here. Would it be ethically justified? It must be if lockdowns are, but ideally we wouldn't force people unless there was evidence that so few people would take it that it would be a necessity. Wow, that's a that's like one hell of a, I'm not gonna give you an actual answer. Um, <laughs> a few housekeeping things to mention, because obviously the end of the podcast is when everyone's gonna hear the stuff, right? Um, going forward, we wanna start getting guests onto the show. Woo, how exciting. So if you want a guest on the show or you know someone who's good, and ideally you or they have a massive social media following, then please get in touch. Uh, the next episode actually will depend a little bit on which guests were able uh, are available of the few that we've lined up. One of the front-running contenders is, is it wrong to listen to the music of problematic artists? Nice. We also need to give a shout out to you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, this podcast did much better than we expected it would last year when we launched it. I mean, we started it purely for fun and over 10,000 people have tuned in around the world to hear our rambling philosophical musings, our questionable banter, and uh, we're really grateful to you. So thanks. Uh, final reminders, launch that newsletter. Please do check it out. Jake, where can people sign up? Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, moedt.substack.com. Got you. Uh, likewise, there'll be a link to the Patreon. Please, any support is uh, greatly appreciated and helps us fund just the minor costs that come up with buying the equipment and producing the show. And if you really do like the show, please do consider subscribing to them. We we want to try and keep it as ad-free as possible, uh, or you know, probably totally ad-free if we, if we get this working properly. Uh, the newsletter will pop up to let you know new episodes are out, give you a brief summary of the arguments to help you organize your own thoughts. And it'll also include some dope philosophical memes and jokes uh, <laughs> the kind of thing and, that'll brighten your day yeah the patreon is just to support the cost of the show and it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy and means that we can dedicate more time and you know what else makes us feel warm and fuzzy is reviews so do I think say vaccines. <laughs> microchips um <laughs> so yeah do 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 leave us a review and check out stasher and tree points as well uh but in general yeah Stay in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for tuning in. Goodbye.